You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. As the debate for health system reform heats up here in Washington, we're going to take a break today and focus on quality, how to measure it, how to achieve it, how to maintain it over time. In order to do so, the environment's created a series of carrots and sticks, things from pay for performance and other activities that either reward or punish those of us practicing in an attempt to achieve higher levels of quality. We're here today with a leader in the carrot <laughs> in the carrot department. Um, our guest is Peggy O'Kane. She's founding president of the NCQA, that's the National Committee for Quality Assurance, a leading accrediting organization for health plans, and in more recent years, the source of a number of recognition programs. Welcome, Ms. O'Kane. Glad to be here, Dr. Wright. I'm sure you've never been called the keeper of carrots. I don't see myself that way, actually, because I think that one of the things that any student of health policy learns very early is that the way you pay for health care drives a lot of behavior. So, I mean, it's kind of a shocking thing to say, I think, many times for physicians to hear things like that. But I think we know that, you know, if you pay a capitation, you know, a fixed amount per member per month, and you don't have a good monitoring system, you may get care withheld, or you may get people trying to make sure they don't have sick people in their panels because there's only a certain amount of money. And we also know that if you pay a fee-for-service and where the more you do, the more money you earn, you're likely to get a lot more care than may be necessary. And then there's the salary pathway, which, you know, I think that if everybody in healthcare were on a salary, we would all be better off. I think there should be performance bonuses and so forth. There are problems with salary, too. You may not get the kind of motivation that you get in a fee-for-service environment and customer service and so on. So there's no perfect way to pay for health care, but there is also no way out of making some judgment and trying to be strategic about what you want from the health care system quickly takes you to how you pay for health care services. And we're certainly seeing the result of a payment system that rewards for volume at this point. Yes. So we see things that are done that probably shouldn't have been done in the first place. So those are kind of inappropriate care. We see care that is appropriate maybe done too often just because the more I do it, the more I get paid. So we see a lot of different variations because our dominant mode of payment now is fee-for-service. And I think the reason that you gave me this carrot label was because (laughs) NCQA has been very active in the pay-for-performance movement. Is that right? Well, yes, and I think uh, your recognition programs can also serve as a carrot. Yes, NCQA began in 1999, actually, with some recognition programs to reward and recognize excellence in the delivery of health care. We started with the diabetes program, which we do jointly with the American Diabetes Association. We have a heart stroke program jointly with the American Heart Association. We have a couple of programs that are really thought about as the medical home or how practices should be organized 
in the 21st century, you know, with kind of a plan for care and data at your fingertips when you need it about your patient and so forth. And then our fourth program is our back pain recognition program, which is really rewarding prudent care for back pain, back pain having been one of the kind of poster children of overuse in this country. So people getting back surgery for things that really aren't correctable by surgery. There's also a lot of imaging that goes on with people with back pain that often leads to procedures that don't actually improve the outcome of the patient. So those are the areas that we have recognition programs in. But the general idea is to really reward excellence. Along that line, Peggy, the recognition program actually serves as a map, does it not, for a practice to define what is excellence. So it serves even as decision support and then recognition to that practice's wider community to show that the practice affirms and supports those guidelines. That's right. Actually, that was kind of an interesting outcome. It wasn't our intention to provide a roadmap for practices, but in effect, when you write standards for how practices should be organized, you do provide a roadmap, and we learned that long ago with our health plan accreditation program. So when you say, you know, you have to have kind of an overview of who you're serving and what the particular issues are in your population, and you should be monitoring how you're doing and then improving it's kind of a roadmap for how to organize a health plan or a practice or any part of the delivery system. And what have been the actual rewards of a recognized practice? How are they manifest? There are a number of things. There are practices that are so proud of what they do that they just want to get the recognition. And so they proudly hang our certificate on their wall. Often they'll be picked up in the local press and so forth. But I think the thing that really has driven demand is when a health plan or a local business coalition or Medicare, and we're about to have a Medicare demonstration project with medical home, when a payer, you know, says, we really want to recognize excellence in our providers and let our patients know who's doing a really great job in what area. And so they will put it in their provider directories and they will often pay a bonus for having achieved this recognition. You know, there are a variety of ways they do that, but often it's a little bump in what you get paid for each visit. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Peggy O'Kane, founding president of the NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. We're discussing quality improvement at NCQA. And I'd also like to talk about the National Priorities Partnership. You co-chair that effort with Don Berwick. Peggy, tell us a little bit about how the partnership developed. The National Quality Forum, as you know, its role is to bring all the parties to the table in healthcare and try to create a coherent quality agenda, and particularly around measurement. One of the things that happened when quality measurements started, when we started it actually with HEDIS, we would do our measures and we'd have the appropriate people at the table. We would have, a, you know, for example, a cardiology advisory group on heart measures and so forth. What happened was, you know, many different entities, specialty societies like the ACC, got interested in measurement and said, we'd like to have something to say about how we're measured. And of course, you have different parts of medicine 
and creating their own measures, this creates kind of a chaotic situation. Even worse is if you're a hospital or a doctor and you've got the Joint Commission with one type of measurement and you've got NCQA with another coming through the health plans and you've got your local business coalition off making up measures, then you may be asked to measure the same issues repetitively in different ways. The measures may not be very well specified, so it might be that you're reporting in what you think of as an honest way, but your competitor is reporting in a way that makes them look good, and I've heard this anecdotally. So the NQF was founded really to try to create more coherence around measurement. So the National Priorities Partners convened a lot of the quality organizations like the Joint Commission, NCQA, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, specialty boards, specialty societies, consumers and purchasers, and, you know, asked us to set some priorities now. We could measure infinite things in healthcare, obviously, but nobody has infinite time to be deploying those measures. And how would we get a real return on our investment in quality measurement. And that investment's not just dollars. That's people's energy, you know, who are delivering the care. So Don Berwick and I co-chaired this group, and it was really quite a rewarding experience because there was such goodwill around the table and such a sense that it really matters what we do here. And I think our first challenge was that we all agreed that when we measure, we ought to be driving out some of the harm that's caused by bad quality, harm both in terms of hurting patients directly in terms of their health, but also harm from wasted dollars. We thought if we go after this kind of bad quality and waste, there will be dollars freed up that will enable us to cover all Americans, and that's obviously what we're struggling with right now as we have this health care reform debate you know, there aren't enough dollars to continue with the way that the system is currently working, you know, so we have to find the dollars. And what better place to find them than in the sources of harm? You're actually uh, setting about to protect people, save lives, and shift those wasted resources to help cover the 47 million uninsured. Yes, that's correct. And uh, we came up with six priority areas that we're really very proud of. The first is to engage patients and families in managing their health and making decisions about their care. So that is part of the picture, I think, that's not been paid much attention to. We've been focused on health plans and providers, but really we know that the patients have the most at stake in terms of their health and that their families are often part of trying to help them maintain their wellness and their health. But we don't have a very strong strategy for that, so that was one. Second was to improve the health of the population. So when you look at, you know, the people of the state of Maryland, for example, you can look at numbers that show how does Maryland stack up compared to California, Minnesota, Missouri, Maine. You know, how do we take that kind of a snapshot of a population, and you can think of it in terms of Medicare population too, and how do we systematically work on having the best possible health for the people of whatever entity we're talking about. Third is to improve the safety and reliability of our healthcare system. We've all heard terrible stories, both in newspapers and from our friends that have been in the hospital, about errors that happen. You know, uh, healthcare is incredibly complicated these days, and there are a lot of different people that are touching a patient. And until we have really state of the art, 
processes for how care is to be delivered, we're going to continue to have a lot of problems. Those problems cost us lives and money and suffering. So this is a very rich area, I think, for recouping some of that money and using it for more positive health-enhancing services. The fourth is ensure that patients receive well-coordinated care. Again, you know, your typical Medicare beneficiary is seeing seven doctors in a year. Now, if all those doctors are operating independently of each other and they're all prescribing drugs not knowing what the others are doing, or if the patient goes in the hospital and none of them knows that and the patient comes out very vulnerable and, you know, at risk for being readmitted to the hospital, there is a real problem there. So there's a huge opportunity, again, with better coordinated care and with, uh, you know, somebody taking responsibility for managing the patient through those kind of high-risk encounters with the healthcare system. Next is guarantee appropriate and compassionate care for patients with life-limiting illnesses. So if you look at Dr. Jack Wenberg's work, the Dartmouth Atlas, it shows us that where you live may determine what kind of an experience you have when you die. So we all know about Oregon where uh, there are a lot of hospices and there's a very good system for the end of life and it's very compassionate and people feel really good about it, as good as you can feel about the end of life, which is, of course, sad. But if you compare that to Los Angeles or New York City, you are very likely to die in an intensive care unit or in a hospital and it's not good for the patient, it's not good for the family and it's very bad for the financial health of the system. And, you know, it strikes me that the data published by Dartmouth and others indicating this marked degree of geographic variation applied to more things than end-of-life procedures and treatments, and we have so much to learn and to share about that variation. But geography should certainly not dictate the quality of your care. Exactly, exactly. But we know the highest spending areas actually seem to have lowest quality outcomes as well. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done, and that is actually one of the big conversations that's going on in healthcare reform now. So we can learn a lot from looking at the data. We've been talking with Peggy O'Kane about quality improvement at NCQA and the National Priorities Partners. Peggy, thank you for your brilliant leadership in this area and for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Dr. Wright, and thank you for your leadership. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.